You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 63 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes are on the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get the show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, Mark Herleman, and with me like a Jedi gone rogue, the EU guru himself, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. I think these red lightsabers suit me. <laughs> oh, Barris, you scamp. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm going uh, to sit down with my daughter and record me and her talking about that because uh, we both had very emotional reactions to it. And, you know, mine is obviously a very different reaction. I mean, for her, she lost two role models in one hit in an essence. So I'm, I was asking her about it and she said she's down. So it'd be a curious little conversation I'm planning on having with her. Nice. I think, I think the, the, the big emotional impact for many of us uh, EU fans, uh, at least before the episode, before we saw the end and got the real emotional impact of the episode was, What? What are you doing to my MedStar, you son of a... What about the Boda? What about... It's gonna screw up Coruscant Knights. Wait, they already screwed that up themselves. Wait, let's let's see what Bonhoff has to say. Look at the interview. Wait a minute. Nick Rostu died in Coruscant Knights, but he's back in Shadows of What the? F- it was not a good <laughs> week to be uh, a Med Star or a uh, uh, Coruscant Knights uh, kind of person. But honestly, um, having talked to Leland Chi directly about it a little bit, I think it's a little bit. Uh, uh, they'll find ways to try to make at least some of this work. I think evasive action probably has some serious issues, but MedStar um, should be safe. But I guess we can well, talk see, about that next week when we get into Season 5. Well, real season. quick, when we jump into that, I mean, I've heard the Wikipedia has already retconned it by saying that somehow she gets redeemed. I'm like, uh, could that be the simplest? Uh, I, I know, I'm like, that just doesn't that doesn't taste right. <laughs> even Even Leland has said that that's no. No, Leland has said that it's he sees absolutely no way that she could possibly get back into the good graces of the Jedi, plus the fact that that would be going against the intent and desire of Lucas himself. So no, now that she's gone, she's gone, which pretty much means goodbye to her death scenes uh, in the comic adaptation, for instance, of Revenge of the Sith, goodbye to at least her role in evasive action, though in order for that to, to keep going, you'd almost have to replace her with someone else so that Zonder could still be the Padawan and, and go on into the other uh, strips. I guess it's Reversal of Fortune. Evasive Action is the broader name of the series. Wow. Um, and, but the MedStar stuff, in theory, could still survive because, in theory, it can be set prior to either these episodes, maybe within that gap between uh, in, in that time jump of Season 3, or maybe even before all of the Clone Wars, because there's nothing in this episode or nothing in uh, Season 5 or actually anywhere uh, in the recent appearances of Barris where it guarantees that she is still a Padawan at that point. She could very well be a knight in what we see in those. Plus, uh, that would actually sort of hopefully deal with a little bit of the issue of the whole, well, you know, she's a contemporary of Ahsoka, it seems, when really she was supposed to be a contemporary of Anakin. And how do they meld with that? Well, they just say she was a Padawan for longer. I mean, she wasn't going to be knighted until the middle of the Clone Wars anyway, thanks to the Med Star books, etc., etc. So I think there's much more of a chance of that getting worked out than some of the other issues, but I find it funny that 
uh, Reeves and Bonhoeff's new book, uh, The Last Jedi, which is essentially sort of the fourth book of Coruscant Nights, in a sense, except not on Coruscant for the most part, is a book that is part of a series that relied on the Bota from MedStar to make sense of the ending of its third book and completely constantly screwed up the dates of various events, including of, of Reeves' own books, and managed to kill off Aura Singh, supposedly, when she appears in books later in the continuity already in Legacy of the Force, um, only for them to wind up in their newest book, The Last Jedi, to be the first source to actually try to make sense of what must happen on Mandalore after the events of Season 5. And in the process of doing that, everybody's like, wow, cool, they're taking into account the Clone Wars. You know, they're actually adding to the continuity instead of being hurt by it, like with Evan Peel, uh, or uh, being all kind of screwed up on their own continuity issues. And then we have something that potentially goes back and messes with the MedStar stuff, which is frequently referenced, um, or not frequently, but a few times referenced within it, again, as part of the backstory of I-5 and the Boda and all that. It just, it seems like there's just no luck to be had continuity-wise when it comes to uh, Reeves and Bonhoeff's recent collaborations. Not to mention the fact that she's going on and giving interviews in which she's saying that Nick Rostu definitely died in Coruscant Nights when, of course, he's in Luke Skywalker and the Shadows of Mendor. Though, when I asked Leland about that, he said somebody had already posted a question about that on his Facebook page and he would answer it there, and I haven't seen him answer it yet as of right now. Interesting. Definitely going to make for some uh, uh, fun pondering and bantering next week on that episode. This week, though... Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we continue bantering about the smash hit, sometimes controversial animated series, The Clone Wars, focusing this time on Season 4, Battle Lines. Consider this your spoiler warning, boys, girls, and sentients from around the galaxy, because here we go. That's right. This is, I mean, honestly, it seems like this is the season in which a lot of people finally came to grips with Ahsoka as a character. The more mature version of Ahsoka that we got for basically the last half of season three was the version of Ahsoka we saw throughout this season. A more mature, more refined, more skilled, and uh, more, I want to say adult, but at least a more um, adult-like character. She now goes from, according to uh, conversations I had with Leland, this seems like it's probably about at least two years uh, after the events that we had in the uh, the early stuff in season one, season two, and the first part of season three. So at this point, she's probably around 16 years old, going on 17. She is a more accomplished fighter. I mean, really, the Ahsoka thing, I think, in this season worked out well. It made her into someone that fans, for the most part, could accept, even the naysayers, to a large degree. But we also had some really, really good stories and character development happening in this season, uh, barring a two-part storyline that I think is probably, or I thought, was the worst two-part storyline, or the worst storyline we ever saw in The Clone Wars, until we saw Sunny Day in the Void in Season 5. So, it's a very strong season, but a season that does have a, a couple little blips here and there, but overall I think this is one that really... It quelled a lot of the worry that people had about how 
a kiddie the series could be, how adult is it going to be, how mature is it going to be, and are we going to finally start pushing toward the darker tones of Revenge of the Sith? Because apparently the answer was yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, this one, I, I liked where we started, you know, with Water War. We had uh, Kit Fisto. We have all the action on Mount Calmari. Uh, I recall this is another one of those instances where we again had another name for the planet Mon Calmari. I mean, we have Mon Cal, Mon Calmari, Calmari, we have Dak. Uh, <laughs> there's like, what, another three out there at least? Yeah, I do remember it being sort of a, wait, what? We really need yet another name for the people and the planet? I mean, we had Dak, we had uh, Mon Calamari. Of course, there were times where they use it without the Mon on there and such. Legacy was really the most recent time we saw a series actually start to use the word Dak uh, a lot more than just Mon Calamari, referring to the fact that the planet does have more than just the one species on it, the Mon Calamari and the Quarren. But now we have the idea that it is Mon Cala and... Yeah, that was that was a bit of a, a head-scratcher, but we did get here an interesting three-part opener. Honestly, not—a lot of people really, really loved it. I thought it was pretty good. I liked the visuals of it, but it really didn't hit me with the same oomph as, say, the attack on Kamino back in uh, season—what was it? Three, I guess it was. Um, but it, a, a good three-part bit here. It ties directly into the Clone Wars Adventures MMO with that mission on Iceberg 3 that sets up the fall of King Kalina— uh, and setting up the prince coming in now, Lichar, to wind up being the next king. Um, we get to see, you know, a lot of underwater conflict, which is cool. We get to see the Gungans really in their element in a way that doesn't make them goofy. And, of course, we got the creepy Carcharodons, I believe is how you say it, like Rift Tamsin, these shark people, who give us a sense of menace to another of these, you know, they show up and then they die type of Separatist leaders. But in this case, one that certainly had a lot more uh, menace to him. You know, we had Admiral Trench, who sort of had the creepy factor to him back in Cat and Mouse. But here we've got one that really just kind of had that violent edge. I mean, he's a shark person. Uh, and, of course, mixed in there, we also wound up with Admiral Akbar, except in, uh, in an earlier uh, rank of himself. So we saw Akbar for the first time in this series. So there was a lot to it, a lot to like. It was one of those ones that I think is either um, a love-it-or-hate-it type of thing, and I'm not sure what we were expecting going into it, so we did have a lot of people who were kind of like, meh, didn't like it. I liked it, I just don't think that it had the same oomph as, say, the Battle on Camino. See, for me, Season 4 was when I stopped paying, I don't know, critical attention to the previews, all that, because it, people were starting to say, oh, they're, they're, they're way over-hyping this, and... I fell victim to it in the first few. You know, I mean, what, the season before this was Secrets Revealed, where they revealed absolutely no secrets. They just gave us more. You know, and so at that point, I was like, okay, I'm not going to buy into the, the trailers. I'm going to watch them. I'm just not going to get all excited and super like, oh, yeah, this is what I'm going to get. Because I, at that point, I realized, you know, they're, they're showing it to you in such an order that it, it always looks more exciting than what you're actually going to get. So when I got to this, it wasn't that I was overwhelmed or underwhelmed. I just enjoyed it for what it was. I, I, I saw... Some really cool new water characters coming in. The shark, the the pteridon or pterodon, whatever the heck they were called, that species. I thought they were a really cool addition. Bringing the Gungans in, I thought that was cool because, you know, I always had the issue with the Gungans being dumbified in, in things. It seems like any time a Lucas project comes along, they find ways to bring more Gungans in and make them even stupider. It's like, why do we have to always stereotype entire species? Come on. I mean, so seeing them come in and actually playing more the warrior role of what I liked about 
episode one, seeing the Gungan warriors. I mean, I remember episode one when we first saw those trailers and we saw the Gungans walking out of the mist and being like, oh, this is going to be awesome. But when that scene actually happens, it was like, okay. You know, it wasn't as... <gasps> As when they first did it in that sneak trailer. And so, you know, it's one of those things. Seeing the Gungans in action as warriors was always something that excites me because that's what I originally think of when I think of Gungans. I don't think of Jar Jar bumbling idiot. And this was also, I mean, if we want to talk about, you know, kind of taking things up a notch, uh, the Gungans get the chance to shine here. But also, really, the artistic department here uh, gets a chance to shine because there's a ton of new character models used within this, a new setting, new character models, uh, really new physics we hadn't really seen all that much within the series as far as the underwater stuff goes. And for the most part, most of those character models, you know, like the underwater, you know, helmet version of these characters, haven't really come back. So they took a lot of time and a lot of money to give us really a, a big explosive opener to Season 4 with assets that so far have tended to be just for those. Uh, it doesn't seem as though they were able to sort of cut the costs, in a sense, by amortizing it over quite a few episodes of, well, we're going to use this one over and over again, so the cost kind of pans out in the end. So kudos to them to actually give us you know, what amounted to a, a massive opening here, even if it was one that was somewhat uh, divisive at the time. Now, the next one is one that left me sort of slapping my forehead like, oh, no, why are you doing this? And that is Shadow Warrior. Now, Shadow Warrior begins with the premise that, well, you know how the Gungans just helped save your butts back on Moncala? Well, forget all that. Because they're actually thinking of leaving uh, the Republic side, and no one seems to think that this is odd, so they're just going there to try to talk them out of it. So there was a bit of inconsistency, it felt like, between the first three episodes and the fourth. We get there and we find out that Boss Nass is nowhere to be found. There's a new boss, Boss Leone, who appears to only be there so that Jar Jar can take his place. Jar Jar couldn't uh, uh, pop in there and bumble his way through impersonating Boss Nass because he looks so different, so we need ourselves a new boss who looks enough like Jar Jar to make this sight gag work. So we get Boss Leone, no explanation for what the deal is with Boss Nass, just like we got Queen Epilana, or not Epilana, uh, Queen Neutney, between Jamilia and Apilana for some freaking reason in the series. They felt like they needed that back in the Blue Shadow Virus stuff. And we eventually wind up finding that uh, another Gungan named Rishlu, a minister, right? Rishlu as in Cardinal Rishlu, as in Three Musketeers era type stuff. Um, is secretly in league with Count Dooku and trying to move them over to the Separatists until finally General Tarpauls is the one called into action when General Grievous arrives and is about to take on the Gungans. And they set a trap for him, essentially. And uh, we find that Tarpauls is really good with the staff and is able to fight Grievous to almost a standstill. Tarpauls dies. That was a shock, I think, to pretty much everybody who saw it. But yeah. we also learn that when it comes to fighting the droids and... and uh, Grievous, you don't need a lightsaber, you don't need a blast, you don't need a cannon, all you need is a bunch of boomas. So why on earth did the clone army not just go and contract with the Gungans to get a whole hell of a lot of boomas and end the Clone Wars in a matter of weeks? Because those things apparently will take down any droid, including Grievous, with very, very little actual effort. I felt like this episode it just... If it was not for the fact that knockdown drag out at the end with Tarpauls and Grievous, it really probably should not have been there. It's it's a, it's a one-gag storyline. Hey, let's have Jar Jar impersonate the boss, and in doing so, it flubs up the continuity of Boss Nass being the boss 
in this time period and again makes Grievous look like a putz. I remember the Clone Wars cartoon series of Tartakovsky. Grievous was this shadow killer badass that everybody was afraid of. And even in the EU, to a degree, he's the shadow killer badass that everyone's afraid of. But now, he's a freaking joke, thanks to the Clone Wars in most respects. He is not a menace anymore. He goes out like a punk in Revenge of the Sith, and we see that he goes out like a punk repeatedly in the Clone Wars cartoon series. So yeah, this was a rant-full episode at the time. You can watch it with your brain off and enjoy it, but as soon as you turn that thinking cap back on, it starts to fall apart. It's like the one-trick pony does more to damage your perception of Star Wars in general by what it brings to the table. I mean, you know, I, 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 I too question why why do that just for the one-trick pony aspect of bringing in, you know, the other Gungan chief just so Jar Jar can replace him. At least if you're going to do it, give us some backstory. I mean, I, I that was my complaint about, and I think it's this season two, where we see Rex's armor suddenly shift, where he's got the, the phase two, phase three cobbled together armor, and the only explanation we get about it is in Star Wars Insider Magazine by Dave Filoni. I mean, it's like, why can't we have some character moments where one or two characters are discussing this? I mean, that was one of the things I liked about the game KOTOR, is that you could walk up to people on the street, start talking to them, and get random little bits of information that made the galaxy bigger, filled in that little bit of backstory. In this case, it would have been great to have Jar Jar stop and talk to another Gungan to say, hey, how did the political uh, vote go now that Boss Noss is out? You know, I mean, anything along those lines to give us something of how that worked. Uh, with the shaman Rish Lu, though, I, I found that that guy was kind of a creepy Gungan. I, I thought that was kind of cool to add a little creepy aspect to it, a dark Gungan, if you will. Uh, but yeah, it, it, all the way around, it served less to build and more to kind of distract you. This does have one sort of redeeming element in it, though, outside, of course, of the death of Tarpoles and all that, uh, which is funny because there was the, that, the death of Captain Tarpoles story out there where it referred to Jar Jar as he will be the death of him. Um, but we do get to see a brief uh, confrontation between Anakin and Dooku in which Anakin gets zapped by Force Lightning and shows kind of he's not quite ready to take on Dooku the way he is in Revenge of the Sith. Though, again, that plays back into the humor of one of the ongoing gags about this series on Republic Forces and elsewhere, which is this whole issue of, in uh, Attack of the Clones, we have Dooku fights against Anakin, Anakin loses. And then in Revenge of the Sith, we get Anakin fights Dooku again, and he says, my powers have doubled since we last met, Count. Well, okay, at first we thought that meant his powers have doubled over the last three years, but now it must be a matter of weeks, months, days, perhaps, because he repeatedly winds up being confronted by Dooku and having to fight Dooku at least briefly in the cartoon series. So the idea, I actually, we did that, um, that song, uh, Dirt Off Your Tunic, that I did as a parody of Dirt Off Your Shoulder by Jay-Z. Uh, Which you can find on our last episode after yeah. the end credits. And if you listen to that, there's one line in there about, uh, uh, I think it's a Dooku's dueling with Annie, powers doubling again, see? It's this idea of, you know, how much must Anakin be getting more powerful if it's doubled not since three years ago, but doubled since, in this case, what, a year ago at the very most at this point. And he'll keep having these clashes. We'll see him clash again later on. So that's another one of these things that, you know, it, it's Lucas is trying to add to his own saga. And at times it seems like he is clashing with things that he himself developed within his saga, like with the age of Beresofi, you know, given who she was and how old she was from what we saw with the female 
human real actress playing her in Attack of the Clones versus the way that he had her portrayed here in the series. It just seems like sometimes Lucas is willing to toss out his own uh, film moments and say, no, 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 this is what I really meant. And that just bugs me. That that's full on. I mean, we, we we talked in past episodes about intellectual dishonesty, and I mean, there are times I really think that Lucas's quote unquote vision is the most intellectually dishonest thing out there because everybody totes it like he's had this vision laid in concrete from day one, and we're gonna follow that. The hell we are. He is making this up as he goes. <laughs> we're giving him carte blanche because he created the galaxy, and I'm curious if we're gonna continue to do it because we're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> And speaking of idiots, that brings us to the two episodes that had me thinking, uh, and sort of groaning for a while, when I thought was the lowest point of the Clone Wars cartoon series until we saw a sunny day in the void in season five. That is Mercy Mission and Nomad Droids. These are our uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 droid-centric episodes in which we start out with uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 uh, with Commander Wolf, who doesn't seem to like them all that much, quite frankly, uh, they wind up on a planet where the king of the Alina, uh, Manchucho, needs the droids' help. Because there's like this gas that's coming up and it's destabilizing the environment and whatnot, and we wind up finding the droids go underground, run into this weird underground society that's basically the Ents, like dark side Ents from Lord of the Rings called the Kindalo, uh, in order them to, in order for them to somehow save the planet, they have to solve sort of riddles and such uh, with this weird uh, sort of oracle type being underground, this creepy looking woman uh, named Orphney, and uh, they wind up essentially saving the planet, though still they don't get any appreciation from the clone troopers. Then, of course, we find the characters um, still on their mission, uh, having just left Aline. And Separatist cruisers wind up attacking the ship that they're on, uh, which does give us a cool sequence of seeing what they're doing running around in the background. Instead of focusing on the action, we see the action sort of behind them, kind of like in the beginning of A New Hope. Uh, they manage to get aboard, that is the droids, manage to get aboard a Y-Wing to escape. They wind up on a planet, uh, Petite Patuna, where they wind up meeting little tiny, was it Lilliputian, I guess, type of uh, uh, beings. Yeah, and, Gulliver's Travels. Yeah, Gulliver's Travels type beings. They wind up uh, saving the day by accidentally uh, killing the leader, the despotic leader, Heizu, by R2-D2 literally falling on him and squashing him like a bug. They then escape, wind up on the planet Balnab, where the people are idiots and are being uh, led astray by a holographic image of a supposed god uh, when it's not really a god or a leader of any kind. It's a bunch of rogue pit droids inside a ship who are manipulating them through the holograms. Though I, I will say that I find that uh, uh, somewhat amusing now, seeing I-5 as a pit droid, or as, with having a pit droid as one of his chassis in The Last Jedi, until finally our characters get back home. They almost run out of power. I think they do basically run out of power, uh, and they wind up being found by the clone troopers and taken back to join everyone else. It was a two-episode detour of goofy Gulliver's Travels-like stuff. I can see that that's where they were going with it, and in that sense, I guess it's not much different than, say, something like the Seven Samurai influence of Bounty Hunters or the Godzilla influence on the Zillow Beast. But these were real groaners of episodes at the time and just really, oh man, uh, it, it was painful to get through these two episodes. I think the, the little kids probably really enjoyed it, but this is one where for the 
the more mature audience, I think it it really missed the mark. Yeah, there was definitely that aspect of the kids were enjoying the heck out of it. I mean, the Gulliver's Travel aspect, and, and, and I felt like at times there was a, a very much Wizard of Oz uh, feel to these episodes. So I think for me, that's that's where I was looking at it. It was like, okay, we're, we're again experimenting with other themes here. It, they, they felt very much like filler episodes, you know, that that was how I saw them, you know, and, and a good filler episode, it, it is what it is, where it gives you a smile on your face, and I think they did a good job, but I think you're absolutely right, you know, for the more mature audience, these are going to be kind of dragging episodes, uh, the humor will probably not be as funny to you, more kind of irritating to you, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, I was watching it with my kids, so I actually enjoyed them for what they were, but they weren't, you know, as exciting. I, I think when when they're in the Y wing and you're watching the background, like as you said, you know, they're it's not focused on the the battle, but more their little actions of kind of what's going on in the New Hope, and that you know it, it felt very throwback. So I mean, it had the right elements, but the action wasn't there. But I think that that works because of where it sets us up. I will say the one thing that is somewhat redeeming for these two episodes is the fact that they do capture the feel of sort of a combined droids and Ewoks. Uh, you may recall that we had the droids cartoon series back there for just a few months. I mean, it was like three months, September 7th of 1985 to November 30th of 85. And then they never came back with a season two. They just did that TV special in June of 86. And that series has sort of the bumbling goofiness in a lot of ways that these two episodes did as far as the droids, and it had the mystical, magical, goofy elements uh, in it, or I guess this pair of episodes has those goofy, quasi-magical elements to it that somewhat harken back, I guess, to the two seasons of the Ewoks TV show that we got that were much heavier focused on magic, and of course the uh, Ewoks Caravan of Courage and Battle for Endor, where especially Caravan of Courage had that, that element of magic to it. So I can see how... It, it doesn't totally deviate from the Star Wars formula. It certainly fits in some stuff we've seen before with those characters, but mm-hmm. it felt more like an homage to something other than the Clone Wars cartoon series than part of the Clone Wars cartoon series. Well, and it was like the lull before, you know, the big storm. I mean, my favorite arc, one of the top arcs of all the Clone Wars, is this next arc that we're about to go into, which was a very dark, action-packed, gritty arc. My favorite. General Pong Krell. That's right. We have a four-part arc here. We have Darkness on Umbara, The General, Plan of Descent, and Carnage of Krell. I mean, this is the the series that finally gave us a little more humanity to the clones. Yes, there's a little bit of Anakin and Obi-Wan at one point, but for the most part, it is Rex. It is uh, the clones. We are dealing with this issue of, you know, are they men? Are they essentially cannon fodder and such? Uh, what do you do when you have a general who seems to view them as utterly expendable? And finally, we see a Jedi who is essentially going to the dark side. He has seen a vision that a new power is rising, the Sith are rising, and he wants to essentially get Count Dooku's attention and to wind up uh, becoming Dooku's new apprentice, not realizing, of course, that Sidious is out there as the Sith master. Uh, it's It's a very... Interesting arc. It gives us some great moral uh, quandaries to certain characters. Uh, we wind up seeing some very interesting new clones. Dogma, in particular, is one who's very conflicted on trying to follow orders, and yet at the same time, uh, he knows what's right. He's just not acting on it. Clones being able to disobey orders they do not think are right. Um, we get Tup, uh, apparently named after Tupac. Tup's got the little uh, uh, teardrop on his eye. Maybe he spent some time in clone prison and killed somebody. Um, and we get some really awesome fights with uh, Pong Krell being involved. Though I will say that this 
season um, on the Blu-rays, there's a lot of, of new cuts added into the Krell arc, the Umbera arc, and they do this on several different episodes in this season. But when you look at the season four Blu-rays or DVDs and you check out where it has a little symbol saying this is a director's cut, um, all that they basically mean is that there's a character who gets impaled. And we didn't see the actual impalement on Cartoon Network. They cut it out by maybe like two seconds. So the so-called director's cuts mean basically nothing for this season. Instead, all we get are a few impalements that we otherwise didn't see, many of which happening at the hands here of Pong Krell. But a great, great arc. Uh, probably the strongest arc in this series outside possibly of maybe uh, the, uh, well, I guess I take it back. It's probably my third favorite arc. Uh, I think the ending for Ahsoka in Season 5 and the whole Mandalorian, Darth Maul, etc., etc. stuff in Season 5 were slightly stronger, but this is right up there. This is where Clone Wars said, look what we can do. We are Star Wars. Yeah, up until this arc, landing at Point Rain was my pinnacle episode, pinnacle arc, you know. This knocked that out of the way. Uh, up until the Lawless in Season 5, for me, the Lawless is, is my favorite arc. This one's second, and the Ahsoka ending arc would, would be right after that one. But, you know, when we're looking at this, I, I think the one thing that, that, well, there's two things that strike me. One was how it seems to kind of throw out everything that Karen Travis had been doing in the EU right into the laps of all the Clone Wars people that have been hating what she was bringing. It was like it, it brought the, the conflict of whether or not they're actually people or if they're just programmed automatrons. Uh, what to do against your Jedi general when he does an order that isn't really a, a right thing? Do we dissent? Uh, do we do we go against him? I mean, are we going to commit treason? What do they do? That whole aspect of it is just I loved it. It, it felt great. You know, a lot of at, at this time, you know, you got that whole back and forth between the Karen Travis fans of the books and and not fans of what the Clone Wars was doing with the show and the fans of the Clone Wars show that didn't like what Karen Travis was doing and you had that back and forth and I always like to poke fun at the fact that many people fail to remember that Karen Travis was selected to do the novelization of the Clone Wars movie so I, you know it's like how funny is that you know that one time she was the authority before she got bumped out and yet to see episodes like this take elements that she did that I loved about her stuff and bring it in there I felt that was a very fitting thing the only downside the other aspect Aspect of this though was the Umbarans themselves okay there is an Umbaran that was with Chancellor Palpatine even when he becomes Emperor Palpatine uh something more I can't remember her first name or anything like that I don't even know if that's right Slymore isn't it it, it is Slymore I wasn't th I was thinking I was getting Sly Noodles or Shy Noodles or whatever mixed up but that chick is one of these people and she breathes oxygen Okay, she's not wearing a special mask. On this planet, all the clones can take their helmets off and breathe the oxygen. Why are the Shadow Warriors wearing masks with some kind of uh, gas inside of it? That, again, is never explained. Another one of those, God, it would have been nice if somebody would have said, hey, and look, they're breathing this jacked-up juice. It's making them like the Hulk, you know? I mean, there was no explanation for why these guys were suddenly in an environmental suit on their own planet when the clones themselves did not have to have oxygen. I, that threw me off so bad that I, I kept getting back. That was the one thing that caught me every time I watched it was, why are they wearing these? Yeah, but it's one of those things that can sort of be forgiven with all the really cool stuff we got here. I mean, we got to see uh, the new Umbaran uh, Starfighters. We got to see those huge tanks of theirs, these sort of serpentine or, or insectoid type of tanks. I mean, it was just one that they really pulled out all the stops 
and gave us a, a great battle with this, you know, it, it was one of those things we saw in the previews, right, was that jumping Pong Krill as he comes down from yeah. the tower, and they really lived up to what people, I think, expected. I, I don't think anybody actually expected it to be as good as it was, because they'd sort of glanced against things like that in the past and glanced against the moral issues of being a clone, but they never really confronted it as head-on. I mean, we get a sequence in here in which Krell sends two groups of clones against each other, killing each other. And we wind up losing a clone that we have met previously. And it's one of those big emotional moments, and it causes a shift in Rex. What I would hope is that someday we're going to see more of an, an extension of this and sort of more of these themes, but it did not seem as though we got much in the way of those themes in Season 5. Um, so you kind of have to wonder, are we going to get to a point where the individuality of clones is going to be addressed uh, in a big way again, perhaps, if there is a Season 6? But yeah, this was certainly a pinnacle for this season. The other aspect of it, too, was when we had the trailers and stuff, Pong Krell became an immediate fan favorite. And I remember watching Twitter and, th- uh, Twitter, watching Twitter and, and all these other social networks as these episodes played, and everyone's perception of him going from rock star, superstar, awesome Jedi to you dirty son of a Sith. I mean, like, everybody felt that betrayal. Everybody hated that character by the time it was over. They did such a great job. And I remember by the time Carnage O'Krell came and, and he's finally out in the open with his, his deviousness, his evilness, his laugh was just so creepy and sinister. And he was out in the midst of the fog and the shadows. He was just like, oh, man, Rex, you're so doomed. But when they get to the end and they've got him captured and they've got him all hand bound and everything and they get him on his back and you're just like, is Rex going to shoot him in the back? And that whole scene, when that played out, that was just so brilliantly done. I mean, I kind of saw it coming that it was going to be dogma, but for a moment there, they play it up where you think Rex actually shot the Jedi trainer in the back hands bound behind with his knees facing against the wall. And it was just like, oh, and then they turn and you find out that it was Dogma. Giving Dogma his redeeming his redeeming point, because at this point, Dogma's been just as big a Sith ding-dong-a-ling-a-ling-a as Pong Krell himself. I mean, there were times where I wanted to reach through the screen and just slap him around. I was like, Rex, come on, do something about your boy here. You know, I mean, and there was a scene like that where 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 uh, Dogma was going. I, I believe it was in uh, Planet Descent when Fives and them go up and and they they steal the ships. Dogma is going to go and tell Krell, you know, and, and rat him out. And Rex kind of cuts him off along the way, and he's like, "You run it through me." And I, I just, you know, I love again that aspect of watching how the clones interact like that. You know, and as you were asking Nathan, you know, will we see this again? I I have always hoped that we would see this show go up past Order 66. I would love to see more of the clones. You know, and at one point I thought we were getting that when they were introducing Waxer, Boyle, and these other clones. But, you know, in this one, we watch Waxer. He was leading the other group that Rex and them come against. And he, that's how Rex finds out. It's it's Waxer dying, and he tells him, you know, Pong Krell sent us here and told us to be looking out for you guys, thinking the same thing. You know, he's been telling them both that their, their saboteur droids are wearing clone armor. So they both go looking to kill clones. Brilliantly playing against each other. I just... This is probably even even though other arcs are my favorite, this is probably the darkest arc of all of the Clone Wars. If you can overlook the fact in the Camino arc that so many babies were killed inside the little embryo shells. And you mentioned how the voice work for Pong Krell was done so well. That is Dave Fenoy. So if if you that name doesn't really ring a bell, I mean in Star Wars he hasn't really done a whole heck of a lot outside of this. He was Lando in X Wing Alliance, but otherwise it's basically just been bit parts. But if you played the recent uh, Telltale Games Walking Dead the game, 
that was on the Game of the Year roster for a lot of different websites. Um, Lee Everett, the main character in that, your character in The Walking Dead, the game, is voiced by Dave Fenoy. So this is the same oh. voice actor as was in that, which I thought was was kind of cool to see. Now, the next story arc, though, was one that was both really cool to see and at the same time really, again, divisive within the fan community to a degree. We had already seen back in the Citadel arc that they took a piece of Starships of Doom, or Shipyards of Doom, and they ripped out this whole idea of we're going to go behind enemy lines by flying in a droid-controlled ship while frozen in carbonite, and they yanked that out. It was an idea that Henry Gilroy had early in the series that they couldn't do. They yanked that out, stuck it in the Citadel arc, and we wound up in a situation where they had to say, well, that really wasn't the first time that they did it back in Shipyards of Doom, if that story even exists at all anymore at that point. Um, and here... They had had that ongoing, short-lived Clone Wars regular comic series. I say regular in that it's not that digest-sized comic series that's out there. Um, like The Deadly Hands of Shanju, that's different. Um, but this ongoing series had a six-issue story arc called Slaves of the Republic. And that story arc uh, was done by Henry Gilroy. It was done back in 2008 and 2009 was when the issues were released. And then sure enough, going into 2011 and early 2012, we get a three-episode story arc for season four, which is the Slaves of the Republic arc. We basically take the comic book series that was done by Gilroy and adapt it into episodes of the show, thereby throwing out the original comics in their entirety. But to do this, they had to make some serious changes to the storyline. For instance, uh, we had the issue of in the... Well, I mean, they, they visually changed the Zygerians quite a bit, the Slavers quite a bit. Um, but in the original storyline, we had Asajj Ventress involved in it working for Dooku, but at this point, Ventress isn't with Dooku anymore thanks to the Night Sisters arc. So instead, she's gone. It's a much more streamlined story to a degree. I think it's a much more mature and well-done story when it's done uh, in the, the cartoon series and it was in the comic, which is not always the case. Usually the, the thing that is written has more depth than the thing that was on film. Um, but you also wind up with things like the positive change. Uh, you may not remember this. Um, many who have followed my stuff for a while, Will. Um, when Slaves of the Republic came out as a comic, it was right in the midst of the whole thing of Ahsoka is dressed inappropriately for a 14-year-old in her regular costume. And they gave her in Slaves of the Republic slave attire that makes her look like she's basically dressed in electrical tape. And that's it. Um, there's one going across her chest, there's one going essentially down from her neck uh, to her navel, but she basically was in extreme slave hoe attire. And fortunately, when they when they <laughs> did the Ahsoka Ho, <laughs> <laughs> but they but they said though they even commented on this in one of the visual commentary things that you can see on the Blu-ray. They talk about how they did get rid of that and they gave her much more of a regal thing, like she was a princess who has been enslaved. So she is wearing something that could work as slave attire, but is also somewhat more fitting someone who is essentially pretending to be a princess who is captive rather than just uh, an everyday individual who is captive. But once those changes are made. We get a very solid three episodes. Um, granted, they don't go as much into the depth of the idea of Anakin being a slave of the Republic and the clones being slaves of the Republic as much as the comics did in their dialogue. And they cut out the interesting ending of the comic in which Anakin and Ahsoka are talking and she says that when the Clone Wars are over, she wants to go out there and, and try to free slaves all across the galaxy and that Anakin might want to go with her, which gave us a clue that maybe that's somewhere that Ahsoka's character might go in the future, which it doesn't seem like that may be the case now. Um, 
but a great action-oriented pair of episodes. We get to see Obi-Wan get the crap beat out of him all over again. Um, and we get to see, again, Ahsoka in a much more mature role of acting as the heroine. And Anakin get a chance to have his dark side somewhat come out. Though, again, he winds up going up against Dooku, only this time with a light whip, essentially, or an electro whip, um, rather than doing so with uh, his standard lightsaber. I really like these, but it is interesting that they blatantly grab from the comics to create this story, and in doing so, wind up dashing those six issues of the comic series from existence. Yeah, this is uh, an arc where at this point I just came to the conclusion that, uh, you know, there's got to be either a multiverse, two separate continuities. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. There's a state of disbelief that I went through with this. That Like, I, I knew things were going to be changing. I knew that conflicts were going to come up. Uh, it was more like a game, like, how many can I catch? You know, because I knew I wasn't going to catch near enough of them because I haven't read most of the stuff. Uh, you know, I knew that the whole big aspect of the clothes and all that. But I, I really liked for the, the aspect of the show, you know, putting aside the aspect of how it was kind of creating a tidal wave of tsunami action against my EU, just sticking with the show, it was fun. It was a good ride. I had some, some fun character growth there, some, some awesome action where we got to watch uh, Obi-Wan getting beat up and all that. We see Anakin doing his thing as a slave and, and, and fighting the, the, uh, the aspects of his past as a slave, seeing Ahsoka all caged up and stuff like that. It, it was an okay set of episodes for what it was. It, it just It gets back to that side of it's so hard when you love all these other things to watch them constantly – Create stories that knock other stories out when all they had to do was just create a new character or a new situation or, or a similar situation. I mean, I just that's the one that, that always just gets to me. It's like, why do we have to constantly do that when you're knocking your other things out? I mean, it, to me, it was it, it seems like you would want to sell as much of your stories as possible. And when you go out of your way to write new stories that contradict and, and, and knock these other ones out. Why would you want to buy the other ones if they don't exist anymore? That's always been a, a long-term EU fans conundrum. Many of these fans, after so long, the stories that they've been reading and loving are getting knocked out of continuity. And after so long, many of them are just like, I'm done. I, there's no respect here. I'm out. And, you know, just constantly see that over and over and over again. You know, you'll hear me talk about this a, a thousand times. It's the dead wampa in the room. I mean, you know... Are we going to continue to do this even though Lucas has stepped out and sold the rights? Is Disney going to constantly let Lucas say and demand what canon is going to be and stomp over his own stories? Because we know he will. And so, you know, when you get to these kind of things and you know it's coming, you either, I don't know, you, you either have to do like I did and flip a switch or kind of go to war with it or just, you have to flip the switch. I, I, that's the only thing I can get to. I don't know. Nathan, how do you come across these when they come? I mean, are you are you going into a neutral mode or are you like writing everything down ready to go to war, or is it something else for you? I mean, I don't know. I've kind of got to the point where you just got to kind of, you take it in stride, pretty much. Um, yes, there's going to be continuity issues. There have previously been continuity issues. I've pretty much given up on the idea that it's going to be an easy fix when it comes to fitting the old Clone War stuff in with the new. And when you run into things like this, it's just one of those things where you just have to assume, okay, that story is just gone now, presumably. It's just... You know, it's it's tossed. Uh, it's both a – I, I would say that this was somewhat of a unique situation. This was not like let's bring in Greedo for no freaking reason or let's make Barris into what she became uh, for little reason other than, hey, we previously made her a friend of Ahsoka, so this will be sort of a double blow to Ahsoka kind of stuff. Um, in this case, 
this was not mainstream EU per se. Remember, e, the EU had done all of its Clone Wars stuff, and we got these Clone Wars cartoon series tie-in comics and novels that, for the most part, weren't being referenced in anything else, and were having no impact on, heck, anything else or themselves or the cartoon series. So they sort of already existed almost in a vacuum. So given that, I was not all that shocked or really, uh, or I guess I take it back. I was shocked, but I was not all that uh, uh, frustrated by the fact that the original version of it was tossed in favor of this. I mean, I'd be totally fine if they did that to all the previously existing direct tie-in stuff for the Clone Wars, because then we wouldn't have to worry about that being a segment of the EU. Because I'm still one who says that what we really should see, uh, hopefully, I, although I doubt we're ever going to see it, would be to say, okay, there's the Star Wars films that have already existed, there's the new Star Wars films, and there's the Clone Wars cartoon series. And they are a continuity in and of themselves upon which we are going to build. And the previous stuff, uh, the other EU stuff that doesn't revolve around the Clone Wars, plus the original version of the Clone Wars, well, that's a continuity in and of itself. Um, so that they can be intact the way that they were instead of having to be sort of shoehorned together. And from that sense, you know, it, it's a little weird to say let's do something like that, but then that has to drag along any of the Clone Wars cartoon series tie-in materials like lightsaber duels or Jedi Alliance and Republic Heroes and stuff like that. But, you know, it's it's kind of par for the course, I think. I mean, it, it is a segment of the EU that's barely EU. It's like limbo kind of stuff. It's trapped between being treated as mainstream EU and being treated as something that is a direct relation to the cartoon series that is being treated as if it doesn't exist, for the most part, by the cartoon series. It's just, it is a weird circumstance for those stories to be in. So you just kind of roll with it, I guess. Although usually... This is where I'm like, oh, wait, what? And uh, if it's something that does pop up, I'll tend to email uh, Leland and just ask, you know, what's going on, if there is anything. But I don't remember having had to ask anything about this other than just, okay, so I'm assuming that the comics are now gone and this supplants it. Okay, great. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things where you scratch your head. I mean, with it being in its own vacuum as it is, it's like you would think that they would try even harder to make that work instead of going, well, it's not selling so well, let's just cut her loose. I mean, because I remember, I, I believe that comic series, that that got canceled like 12 issues in. It didn't make it past like the 13th, I believe. Uh, got X-Nade right away because it just wasn't selling very well, which to me, that was just like a sign of, well, obviously, because you're not playing well, that it's not working well when you decide to bring it back into the EU. I mean, th th that gets to that whole aspect of it was a definite feeling of us versus them. Uh, and it's not everybody, when I say the us versus them, there are contingents on both sides that can look at it all and enjoy it all. But those of us that are able to see both sides and enjoy both get stuck in the middle watching it. And it's like, it, it's frustrating to watch, especially when you feel like the promoing side is kind of feeding it. Yeah, we said Greedo. No! Um, now, of course, one of the big controversial things that we got back in previous seasons, back in season two and season three, but especially when they were announced for season two, was the Mandalorians and what to do about them. And we recently, back in season three, got uh, Heroes on Both Sides and Price of Peace, where we had the introduction of Lux Bonteri. So sure enough, those two come together and do finally uh, reemerge in season four, albeit only for one episode, the only single episode story in all of season four, which is a friend in need, in which Ahsoka goes uh, to essentially help Lux Bonteri. They wind up there uh, in a Mandalorian camp 
with uh, Pre Vizsla in charge of it, where we actually get to meet for the first time the Night Owls with Bo-Katan in charge. Uh, Katie Sackhoff as Bo-Katan in this minor role that will become a much larger role in Season 5. We get to see how the Death Watch have really kind of become more violent uh, after the events that happened previously in the first Mandalorian arc where Dooku essentially betrayed them and did not stick with them to try to help them take over Mandalore again. Uh, and we get to see this growing affection between Lux and Ahsoka, uh, with the ending being that, of course, he goes off on his own, and Ahsoka wanted him to come back to the Republic. So it's kind of that, uh, that uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess that touching goodbye kind of moment thing. Not that anybody... Bittersweet. Ex- and not that everybody expected them to still stay together at the end of the episode. But, of course, this helps set up the idea of that affection being there and that sort of romantic tension when we finally get to see Lux and Ahsoka interact again early on in Season 5. So for a standalone episode, it was a good episode, um, but at the same time, it was short. It was not something we got a lot of depth, which it's, it's easy to forget was even in Season 4, but it acts as an interesting bridge between the previous Mandalorian stuff that we saw and the previous stuff with Lux that we saw and setting up what's going to be happening in Season 5 with both of those, although by then as separate storylines once again. I remember that the fandom side of this was playing up the whole love between Ahsoka and Lux. And I remember for me, that was a turnoff. I was like, I really hope that's not how they're going to walk her out of the show. Because that was a lot of people's, oh, well, maybe maybe he'll he'll join the Separatists and, and he'll convince her to leave. And I'm like, really, another Jedi that falls in love with Lindsay? Do we really want to go there again? Especially in the line of that Obi-Wan's done it. How many times with his rom- romances? Anakin's got one and now Ahsoka. Of course, we've got a lineage of these cheating little Jedi. But... You know, it, it was an all right episode all the way around. I mean, uh, aside from that, I just I wasn't big on that. The night owls, though, uh, you know, I noticed that I didn't catch that they were night owls until uh, uh, until Shadow Conspiracy when they'd actually had mentioned them in there. Uh, you know, again, one of those things would have been nice if they'd had just like a quick little comment about it. You know, I mean, that was cool in the Mandalorian aspect of they are a contingent within a contingent within a contingent of Mandalorians. Uh, the Death Watch. Now we know the Death Watch actually has other groups in them. I mean, why why are they Night Owls? Why are they not calling themselves the Death Watch? Oh wait, they're calling them Death Watch. Uh, okay, that adds to the 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 blender effect of what we've had going on with the EU aspect of the Mandalorians. And we got the true Mandalorians. We've got Cal uh, uh, true Mandalorians. We've got the Death Watch. We've got you know this other now faction inside the Death Watch, the pacifist group who've been running things for a long time. I, I like seeing that and the fact that they were there as a faction within a faction. I thought that worked and I thought that that gave a good opportunity for people to creatively come up with some retcons as to where Cal's group is right now. Heck, they could be part of the Death Watch group right now, just refusing to call themselves Death Watch. I could see that working. Though I don't know that we'll ever get an answer on that, or at least not anytime in the near future, especially since right now we don't know if there'll be a season six, so we don't know at what point Leland and others will be able to start working on trying to figure out a way to to fit all of this together. Um, The next storyline was another of these four-episode arcs, along with the final four-episode arcs. We had a lot of four-episode storylines this time around. And in this case, we have Deception, Friends and Enemies, The Box, and Crisis on Naboo, in which, of course, we begin with Obi-Wan essentially faking his own death to the point where even Anakin and Ahsoka believe it, and going undercover as Reiko Hardeen with this weird uh, face-shifting technology they use to make him look like Reiko Hardeen, so that he can get uh, essentially into a Republic prison 
and uh, go winds up being with Cad Bane and Moralo Evol to find out more about a plot being orchestrated by Moralo Evol for the Separatists. We wind up seeing uh, some interesting encounters, such as uh, him almost, Obi-Wan that is, as Reiko uh, being taken down almost by Anakin and Ahsoka. We get to see his ship here, very much like the Lady Luck that Lando flies eventually. We get uh, sort of a, a hodgepodge of different bounty hunters or different people trying to work with Morala Ival on his final mission, which, uh, which go through this crazy American Gladiator-style testing ground called The Box. And then finally we get to see a plot supposedly involving the kidnapping of Chancellor Palpatine on Naboo, though it seems like it's more of a Sith thing set up to drive Anakin towards Dooku for another confrontation between those two so the power can double in even shorter of a time. But I gotta say, even though the whole face-shifting thing was a little bit weird uh, in this, and in order to make sure that the audience knew which characters were which, they did have to do that thing where the holographic... Uh, the, the weird holographic things over the characters that don't seem to require emitters to be carried. It's almost like they put this holographic shroud on them and it follows with them. Um, in order to make it so the audience knew who it was, they had to flicker from time to time and show who was underneath. I'm hoping that was just for our sakes because surely somebody who was there would have seen, Oh, wait a second. That guy over there, that's not really him. Something shimmered and I saw somebody else underneath. Either I'm, you know, drugged out of my mind... Or something's up here. Um, but I like the idea, again, if you see this all as essentially a plot by Palpatine to be able to drive Anakin more towards the dark side, and if we want to see more of Anakin and how far he's willing to go when he it believes that Obi-Wan is dead, at least for a little while there. I mean, I really do think this was a solid storyline for this season. I think it certainly is one that these days people look at and it sort of pales in comparison to the final four episodes or to the uh, the Umbera arc that we got of four episodes, but it was certainly a strong story in its own right, and I think certainly surpassed even what we saw, say, with the stuff on Moncala this season. I, I, I don't really know why this is so maligned from time to time by fans, especially when it even gives us, you know, Boba Fett in prison and gives us a situation that might allow for his escape so we can show up later on in that season finale four-parter here. It was, it was a decent little set. Uh, solid is a good way of calling it. I mean, you, and we also had aspects that uh, Reiko Hardin's costume was like a throwback to the concept armor of Boba Fett. Uh, you know, w when we did see the ship that he had, I, I thought they later said that that was the Lady Luck, or it would eventually become the Lady Luck, which I, I thought that was kind of cool, a little, a little tidbit there. Uh, I really enjoyed the character growth and development in this one. You know, the the, the aspect of Obi Wan dying and going undercover and all that was really fun. Watching how Anakin reacted was was a good ride. I I really loved it. And, and again, we have also these really cool names like Moral Evil, uh, Morala Evil. Stephen Stanton also voiced that guy. Another a fun character. I really thought he was a cool one. He kind of reminded me uh, to a degree of Doctor Otto Octavius from Marvel. You know, uh, a mad genius that's just you know, so smart, so bad, and just so down for his cause. Uh, when we get to his little, the box, and they're doing their tryout, and he's doing his little, uh, you know, I'm I'm Oz kind of behind running the whole scenes, kind of doing the uh, jigsaw and saw kind of thing. You know, I, I thought it was fun. We also had Embo and some other really cool, uh, you know, bounty hunters all fighting. I, I thought it was a really solid set. You know, solid is a very good word. I like that word. Solid is is definitely what we're looking at here. You know, it, it was a good. I would say as all uh, an arc, it was eight 
a good solid eight out of ten. Uh, you know, it wasn't as great as some of the other episodes, but it definitely wasn't a lull. I mean, it was action packed. I really enjoyed this all the way through. I like the shift to the four episode arcs. Uh, you know, at this point, it becomes something that we see more common than not. And and that was good. You know, I, I've always said that this show shouldn't be in the half hour to the 22 minute blocks. They should be doing a 45 minute to an hour run. I mean, it, it would be. You know, a much more funner ride, funner ride. It would be a fun ride if we had that. And yet here we go. You know, they start giving you this four part arcs. And in a sense, that's what you're getting. You know, you're getting that overall movie feel inside your seasons. And and, and that's what it started to feel like. It was like each one of these arcs were mini movies. And I, I really enjoyed this one. It, you know, I, I could see this being almost a live action episode. That's right. And of course, then we get the. Oddly enough, uh, the four episodes that really don't feel as connected as the other two four-episode arcs that we got in this season, but which were eventually released in an edited-together feature film-style version called Darth Maul Returns. Our four-part finale here was Massacre, which follows Asajj Ventress, Bounty, which also follows Asajj Ventress, uh, Brothers, which doesn't, which tends to follow instead Savage Opress, Finding Darth Maul, and then Revenge, in which we see Darth Maul's actual return. This one almost feels like one we need to deal with in chunks, because it really kind of reminds me of Farscape. For a long time, Farscape did this thing where in its seasons, in its four seasons, a lot of times it had these uh, four-part finales. Sometimes it was more like three and then one that kind of acts as an epilogue, but the first season's so-called four-part finale really didn't feel like a four-part finale. It was felt like sort of four barely interconnected episodes that were touted as if they were, and that's kind of what we get here. Um, we start out with Massacre. We have uh, Dooku finally decides, when uh, Saj Ventures just happens to have finally arrived back on Dathomir, so you wonder if he's been tipped off or something. She is officially uh, a knight sister, of course, uh, as, as she finds in this episode, and uh, Savage is gone. She tries to be there with her sisters now under Mother Talzin, and instead, Dooku sends his people after her. Grievous arrives with the clone, ar- or with the clone army, with the uh, the droid army, and wind up battling against the Night Sisters. Uh, Talzin goes to old Daka, who is able, a, a creepy old lady, who is able to raise an army of the dead, like real live zombie zombies, like the dead brought back to life type zombies, not brain worm type zombies like we got in the uh, the Geonosis arc, to fight against the Separatists, until finally we get to see Asajj battling directly against Grievous. We see the Defoliator back again from Season 1, blasting through and destroying a big part of this little area on Dathomir. We see the wiping out of most of the Night Sisters. The Mother Talzin apparently escapes in essentially a mist form after pulling a crazy voodoo doll type of thing against Dooku, but not managing to actually kill him. It's an episode that stands out perhaps most because it's an episode in which we have none of our heroic characters, unless you count Asajj as now being a heroic character, and her character arc was certainly on the way to making her more of a good guy than a bad guy, but still, this was the beginning of that process in a lot of ways. Uh, so just sticking with the one part of the four-parter, uh, what, we, what do you think about Massacre? You know, I enjoyed it. Uh, we're on the tail end, I believe, of some of the zombie action that we were getting with uh, Red Harvest and stuff. So zombies, again, were feeling very uh, oversaturated. And then there were a lot of people that were like, really, more zombies? But I I liked it. The creepy <laughs> aspect of all those Night Sisters coming to life and, and, and 
falling out of their little hanging spider web like tombs. I mean, that was very creepy. And the aspect of just watching that gave you some depth to the culture as to how they buried their people. So it was like, it was like a, a double whammy there of, of coolness. But, you know, I, I recall, I seem to recall that it was Sidious, though, that ordered Dooku to off Asajj, that, that, he had had detected her and detected that she had grown too powerful and that Dooku needed to do something about it. I recall that there was something along that line that there was that Dooku's hand was kind of forced. Um, and, and that betrayal, I, I remember thinking, you know, is this, is this going to knock out obsession? And by the time I remember thinking at the time it was over, like they could find a, find a way to get it so it could still work. But after watching all season five, I'm really beginning to think like, there's just no way that that's another one that we've lost. Uh, but Again, getting back to that, you know, some people complained that Dathomir, it didn't look like Dathomir had been described. Again, I get back to the aspect of planets have ecosystems that are large. I really, truly believe that wherever the Night Sisters are, they're going to be changing the landscape because of their use of the dark side and their magic. That it is going to do what we saw on the on the movie, on the TV show. You know, it was all dried out. Everything was dead. There was very little life to the area they were at. That to me, that that seemed to fit well with what we were thinking of. Um, I like the technology that they had with their little glowing uh, uh, force bows and force arrows and stuff. That was a really cool little technique. Um, I, I dug when they decked uh, Ventress out. You know, I was like, "Where's my night sister pack?" You know, I mean, I believe we have one where there's Mother Talzin and a couple, but but yeah, you know, this is one where I was just like, at this point, you know, with my daughters, my son's got more male Clone Wars figures. And at this point, I was like, you know, they had that big push. Katie Lucas is doing this and girl fandom power. I was like, right on, you know, here, here we go. You know, my little girls are going to have something. And Hasbro didn't do nothing with it. It was like, really? I mean, are we really going to continually do this sexist BS where we're only going to cater to the little boys? I mean, come on. I, it really gets frustrating, you know. I mean, as a guy, I, too, enjoy the, the female figures. You know, you can't just populate the world with a bunch of male figures. It can't all be Smurfs here. Wow, does that make us all smurf it? That's kind of scary. <laughs> um, no, I, I do think that this was... It, it is sort of something that Dooku brought upon himself by listening to Sidious in that sense. But it's funny because over the weekend here, I've been watching, as I was grading papers and such, I watched the visual commentary and all the different featurettes on the Clone Wars movie Blu-ray. And in one of them, I forget which one that it was now off the top of my head, uh, Filoni talks about the the birth of Asajj, bringing Asajj into the series, and how it was very important to Lucas that she not be referred to as or not be considered to be Dooku's official apprentice, and that she has to be very subservient. Yeah, I guess it was in the visual commentary when she bows to Sidious. Um, she has to be very subservient. She has to bow to Sidious and whatnot, because if he ever thinks of her as a Sith apprentice and breaking of the rule of two, she must be killed. And how the rule of two is very, very important. But how many times in this series... Have we heard her referred to as Sith now? I mean, it happens pretty freaking frequently at this point. So it seems as though whatever that rule was that Lucas created, um, as far as how she should be treated in the series, either the series or Lucas himself have just tossed that sucker out the window. I mean, we know that essentially she is not really a Sith apprentice. She is his apprentice in a sense, but she is not considered a true Sith lord of any kind. Yeah. Um, but still, you know, there's that level of I'm sure that that probably... Uh, brought up some confusion, but it's interesting to see her left here alone with that that kind of dark ending of her just, you know, what am I going to do now? I'm all alone. But apparently she gets back on her feet pretty quick because <laughs> then we get the episode Bounty. Another thing real quick on that is I was just watching episode two and they talk about 
the mysterious Count Dooku. And I'm like, what's so mysterious about Count Dooku? And then there's the aspect of Darth Tyranus. And it's like, how come they never really explain that? I mean, in the EU aspect, we only have Boba Fett knowing that Dooku is, is Darth Tyranus. And it's like, the Jedi are hunting down who the Sith are. They knew that Darth Maul was killed. They didn't know if he was the master or the apprentice. And yet all of a sudden we're calling Dooku a Sith. We're calling Asajj a Sith. And no one seems to be caring about this Tyrannus. Nobody's trying to tie that name to anybody. I mean, yeah, there, there definitely seems to be a disconnect with what the galaxy knows of the Sith, what the Jedi know of the Sith, and who the Sith are and who the known Sith are at this time. And, and, and from the public standpoint that being us, the viewers, the readers it's like we know more than everyone else. It's like, and it doesn't tie in. It's like, we have more information and we have information that in some regards, like the whole dark Tyrannus, it's like, what is the point of that? Because they, they give Obi-Wan that name by Django. I was hired by a man named Tyrannus. And it's like, yeah, they do nothing with that, that lead. And that that's always kind of perplexed me. And it gets back to that aspect of, they keep calling Asajj Sith as well. And then later by episode three, Dooku is the Sith Lord Dooku. It's like, well, why aren't, why isn't he toting that he's Tyrannus? That's always bothered the heck out of me. Of course he disappears though, as we head into the next story, it, it's very much following Asajj at this point. You would never have guessed looking at this four part finale that it really was supposed to be about, you know, Darth Maul. It's not really until we get that feature-length version where they re-edit it and shift a few things around that we even get anything with Savage happening yet. Uh, it's essentially a two-part Asajj story and then a two-part Savage story that we get for this finale. The next part, though, is Bounty. Asajj Ventress is at a cantina. She winds up killing a, a bounty hunter who makes a pass at her named Oakhead. Again, another of these, hey, it's a director's cut. Yeah, all we do is see her stab through Oakhead instead of seeing the, the lightsaber flash, and then he falls down. Yeah, that's a director's cut, really? That's like the whole she kisses the clone before killing him thing, making something into an extended cut, uh, just because it was censored for Cartoon Network. In any event, she winds up uh, taking Oakhead's place after killing him with a bounty hunter team, which includes Bosk, uh, who of course we know uh, from the series and all, uh, from the films and all, um, we have Lats Razzi, who is a newcomer at this case with a crazy weird boa thing that she can use. Always reminded me a lot of Harley Quinn uh, in a lot of ways. We have <laughs> Dengar, who of course we know from the films and who is voiced by uh, Sean of the Dead's, oh god, what is his name? Simon Pegg. Yes. Good old Simon Pegg. And I, I'll take a moment here to throw this in there, because you know from the Star Wars report, Riley had a big issue with Simon Pegg, because Pegg is a, is a known prequel hater mm -hmm. you know openly and, and you know and like i always try to tell riley fandom is big fans come in all sizes and we're not gonna like everything and some of us are more vocal than others <laughs> but in his and, case he's going to crap all over the prequels and then take a role granted as a classic trilogy character in a story set within the prequel era and then all of a sudden become all you know Star Wars is great. Every aspect of Star Wars is great. It seems as though he sort of changed his tone when he had the opportunity to actually get a role within Star Wars. you got to wonder if at some point he was griping and moaning about Star Trek before getting to become Scotty. I mean, he did a good enough role as Dengar, and it's cool to see someone like him who's sort of well-known in the series. It brings more visibility to the series. But to have him do that after sort of crapping all over it... Um, 
that I think was, or not over it, but over the prequels, that I think was a little bit of a, a disingenuous kind of thing. You know, it'd be, it'd be as if J.J. Abrams said, you know, I like uh, Star Trek, Star Wars can kiss my butt, and it is offered the chance to direct, you know, 7, 8, and 9 and such. Well, he definitely took the Lucas pill, you know. Once I've swallowed this pill, I'm going to follow whatever Lucas says and does religiously. But, I mean, it, it, to me, it was a sign that, the powers that be look beyond things like that and they take a talent for a talent that they're not going to get personal. And I think that that's what, what fandom needs to remind themselves when a decision like this happens and they have a visceral reaction. Don't take it personal. True. So we've got uh, Bosk, Latsrazi, we've got Dengar, of course, from the classic trilogy. Uh, we have C-21 Heisinger, a new droid uh, that kind of spins around and does a Death Blossom, Last Starfighter type of thing with his blaster arms. And we have Boba Fett, apparently having escaped from prison, perhaps during the same breakout that we saw back in the arc with uh, Obi-Wan as Reiko Hardeen. And they are on a mission where they are employed by Major Ragoso, and uh, Ragoso wants them, uh, on the planet Corzite, wants them to deliver a package to the, the despot of the, of the uh, planet, Otua Blank. And it turns out that inside the package is not gold or anything like that, as they're traveling on this sort of subterranean train thing. It's a girl. A little girl named Pluma Sodi, who is being forced into essentially being the bride of Otua Blank. And these ninja type, uh, it looks like Sub Zero, Scorpion, Reptile, uh, Ermac, Rain, uh, Noob Saibot, and all the, the, the different ninjas from Mortal Kombat, uh, who again give us a shot. Uh, another of these, hey, it's going to be an extended director's cut now because he throws a knife and we actually see it sticking out of the character's back on the Blu ray, not on TV. Um, these ninjas get aboard. They're fighting against the various bounty hunters to try to get her back because they are led by her brother, uh, Crismo. And we wind up finding a bit of humanity within Asajj because by the time we get to the end, Asajj is willing to help the little girl. She was, she lost her home. She's taken away from all she's ever known. She is on, you know, she's all alone essentially in the galaxy, the way that Asajj is feeling at this point. So she's willing to help. She gets paid. To help, she winds up sending Boba Fett to a, to a blank instead of Pluma, and Pluma and Crismo get to go off into the sunset. And uh, Asajj gets her last little comment about how she's really a different person now than she was prior to all of the recent events, where when she was just essentially you know, being defined by what she was and who she was to Dooku and the Sith, as opposed to being her own woman. From a character development and an action standpoint, this really was a cool episode. But again unusual how they try to fit this and make this into a four-part finale when this part feels like it may relate more back to last episode but has virtually no relation forward into anything else with the exception of Asajj's attitude and being able to be a little bit uh, of, a, of a good character as opposed to an evil character in Revenge. Yeah, absolutely there. I recall there was like an Easter egg, though, in the uh, cantina when they're looking at the bounties. I, I don't recall if it was a bounty of Obi-Wan or what, but I recall that one of the bounty posters was an Easter egg that fans were going on about, and I, I just don't remember catching what that one was. Uh, did they ever tell us how Boba Fett got out of the jail, though, or are we just supposed to assume that he uh, pulled a Morbius and when, uh, Do when Otto escaped from his thing, he got out at that same time? I mean... Sometimes that stuff's never really mentioned, and we have to find out about it after the fact. Was that one of those where they never actually gave us an official story? It just happened? From what I know, I think it's just an, an assumption that he broke out during that same big prison riot that we saw back in that previous arc. Although, 
that armor that he's got, and you know, he's not wearing the the actual Django Fett armor at this point, which leads to that question of is Lucas still gonna try to say that the helmet that blew up back in R2 come home is actually uh, the helmet that Django wore, so there's no chance of him actually wearing Django's helmet. I'm hoping they're still going to say that it was a spare helmet of some kind, um, so that some of the EU stuff with that, you know, that the use of that armor still works. But we do find there's a story called Mandalorian Memories by Robin Etherington in uh, the U. I'm not sure what it is in the UK, but in the US, it's Star Wars: The Clone Wars magazine issue number 16 for April of 2013. It's the current issue. Um, we have a story in which. Heisinger and Bosk and Boba break into uh, a vault, basically, on Kamino, and they're trying, they wind up fighting against a Plo Koon, and they wind up fighting against Shock T, and by the end, as you hear me kind of flipping the pages here, excuse me, uh, sorry, uh, Dingar and Lazarazi are part of this team also, you just don't see them until a little bit later on. So we don't know anything about how he actually breaks out, but there is a story in issue number 16 of the U.S. Clone Wars magazine, the current issue called Mandalorian Memories by Robin Etherington and it has Boba on a mission or a mission on a on a a, a, a gig if you want to call it that uh, on a job for himself really to Camino and it's him and Bosk and Heisinger and they're going after what is supposed to be this uh, special Mandalorian blade that they're going after and Turns out that Dengar and Lats Razi are working together. They are also on their own mission there to try to steal essentially the same thing. And they all run into Plo Koon and they run into uh, Shock T until finally they find that the blade itself is not what they thought that it was. But he manages, that is, uh, Boa manages to get away with an old school uh, Mandalorian style helmet. And it's that helmet that he has in the uh, uh, the episode here. So we don't get how he gets out. We do get how this team comes together and starts working or, or, or meets each other. Although it seems a little bit odd because Lazrazi and Dengar get arrested and the others get away. So maybe they go and they uh, they you know bust Dengar and Lazrazi out of jail to get them to work with them. But we get an origin story essentially for his new helmet, his new look, and we get to see this team before they are a team thanks to that. Tale. It's one of the few times, honestly, that anything in the comics, in the Clone Wars magazine, seems to have any effect on, you know, anything in the broader uh, storylines. And granted, you know, he'd have the helmet without it, but it's kind of cool to see an origin story for how he got it. One that actually plays well. Yeah. <laughs> nice. You know, and I, I, I don't know, something about this also felt like Firefly's uh, train, the train job episode, you know, how they're on the train. Something about that just had that Wild West feel, you know. They're definitely playing up those themes, and, and I want to say they've been doing it since season one. It was just so subtle that we didn't realize it was going on so well until they got to the third season. And that, of course, brings us to the two-part finale that really is sort of a two-part finale as opposed to four. We'll hit them again in turn, starting out with Brothers, also known as Savage Press goes for a long, long, long walk, uh, the episode. Um... We wind up seeing Savage Press using the amulet that he got from Mother Talzin to finally try to hunt down his brother, Darth Maul. And it's interesting, because this is a story that we wind up getting uh, some more background with in that Wrath of Darth Maul book by Ryder Windham, that Star Wars biography book. It sort of ties this all together. But he winds up essentially going out uh, to the planet Lotho Minor, 
where he finds that his brother, Darth Maul, has been living for years. We do get a backstory of how he gets there in The Sith Hunters, that Clone Wars Digest. The idea that he crawls out, that the top half of him at least, crawls out with some of the, the plasma material there on Naboo, winds up inside a, a ship carrying, I guess it's sort of like supposed to be plasma waste or something like that, that then drops those canisters full of waste, one of which includes Maul, uh, onto Lotho Minor as a dumping ground, and then he gets out of it and winds up uh, using the dark side and his pain to draw together these par new parts to his body. But we wind up seeing Savage finally reunited with him, only to find that Maul, as played here by, of course, Sam Witwer, is basically nuts. You know, years of being there uh, in pain and wanting revenge and all alone for the most part, except for his little, uh, his little snake buddy Morley, the Anacondan, has made him... Uh, kind of a babbling crazy guy and he babbles parts of the Sith code the way that he plays the the, the crazy Maul is great for Sam Witwer um, but we do finally see at least a reunion here and the idea that uh, it may be possible for Maul to finally start to get his revenge on the Jedi you know at last we reveal ourselves to the Jedi at last we will have revenge actually no at last you reveal yourself to the Jedi at last you'll get your butt cut in half then you'll have to go back for revenge you know, over a decade later there, Sparky. Uh, I think this was... It's another of these ones that could have been less than an episode. It could have been, like, maybe the first chunk of an episode if we didn't have to have Savage walking and walking and walking and walking throughout the episode. In that sense, it shares some parallels with A Sunny Day in the Void, which, again, is the worst episode of the series thus far, in my opinion. Um, but at least we finally get Maul reconnected and things are set up for the next episode, Revenge, that will be cool. Um, and the Jedi are sensing the fact that something new is amiss. And uh, even Yoda is able to say an old enemy has come back from the dead to haunt you again. So, I don't know. For setup, it was great. As a standalone episode, this episode is not really very good. Uh, you know, to me, this one had the Lord of the Rings feel to it. You know, Morley was like uh, Shelob's lair. Uh, you know, you watched... Uh... Savage kind of go on his walk and kept walking and walking. But, but you know, you mentioned something about the biography there, about how Maul got to uh, Lotho Minor there. And so you're telling me that Naboo, that beautiful place, that civilized place, is only so nice because they're dumping their trash on another planet? That seems so uncivilized. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think about the fact of, you know, when we see uh, Savage get magically amped up by Mother Talzin and the magic, you know, getting back to when she becomes the mist at the end, they were very specific to say that the magic wasn't the force. Although I would say that almost everybody that watched that episode came away with the impression that, yes, they were the same. They were just a different aspect of the force being used. It was being used in a way never before. Uh, what did you come away with that? I mean, I mean, we saw Savage, you know, he kind of absorbs the material and then, uh, you know, in season five, when he, he ends up perishing, spoiler warning, I give afterwards, uh, it, it leaks from his body. He's leaching it out. It's the same mist that mother tells and poofs to when she goes to die. It, it definitely left me feeling like there was a, a force aspect to it. I, I just have a hard time buying that, that it's not the force. I mean, yeah, it, it always seemed to me like, you know, it's the same way that they portray the the magic in, uh, you know, the, the you know, courtship of Princess Leia or any other time with the Dathomiri, which is the idea that it's essentially, it's the force, but used in a different way. It's like their way of channeling it is different. It kind of reminds me of, oh, geez, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Um, I've read some fantasy 
books, and I want to say it's Dresden, but for some reason Dresden doesn't sound right, um, where in order to use magic you have to essentially do spells. Oh no, that's what it is. It was the Technomages in the Babylon 5 stuff in the Technomage books, where they were using technology, uh, and it seemed to be magic, but their way of using it uh, depended on who you were, because based on your personality, you might picture the magic as equations in your head, you might picture it as something uh, very visual in your head, uh, as sounds in your head, as ways of making it happen. I was thinking it was kind of the same thing. You know, it's the force being used in a way that's unusual, but they're communing with the force in a way that is much more attuned to their own traditions, which is going to be somewhat more shamanistic and animistic in a lot of ways. Though, honestly, you know, after seeing the magic stuff used in Ewoks and seeing it used in the Ewok telemovies, again, it magic is sort of a, an ingrained part of Star Wars, and you can either say it's magic or you can say it's part of the Force, but it's there whether we like it or not, whether we think it fits with the Force directly or not, so it's really just a matter of dealing with it. You know, I mean, yeah, it seemed yeah. a little over the top here, but what are you going to do? It's, it's already in there, it's just now someone is bothering to use it. Well, another one that, that had me stop and scratch my head was was the aspect of the brothers. Uh, we had Farrell, the third of the Maul brothers. And then if you read Darth Plagueis, it, it, it's always left me confused because it gives you the impression that Maul had a twin or that Savage is his twin. Uh, but I've always wondered about that because Savage kind of seems like he is the age that Maul was in episode one. Uh, in the Phantom Menace, that, that they seem to be about that age group. So I always question whether or not Maul has another brother out there that's his twin, or if that was supposed to be Savage they mentioned in Darth Plagueis, because it seemed like Maul was able to be given to Palpatine, Darth Sidious, because there was another sibling to kind of take the place in the clan, and therefore they didn't realize that he was given away. I mean, they realized it, but there was somebody else there to kind of take the sting out of it, if it were. So I've always, I've always been taken by that, that, that the aspect of how the brothers worked and what their last name was, if they had a last name, or if they go by the clan name, how the Knight Brother aspect worked. You know, it was, it was interesting to see. And it was nice, though, to know that even though they decided to go ahead and make, you know, the, the Maul's backstory there different, you know, like we explained in the last season episode, uh, they, they definitely stayed true to what was there before by, connecting it and finding a way to retcon it all together. But I definitely get back to that aspect of in Darth Plagueis, is that what they meant? Did they mean that, that Savage and Maul are brothers? Did they mean that Maul has a twin brother? Or was it just something that was written so, so out there that it's easy to, uh, you know, not kind of latch in on it and get a good grasp of. Okay. So I, I, I had it muted there for a second. So I'll know I'll be able to edit this out. Uh, it's I just said doing the helicopter shit again. Fuck. I don't know what is doing that. I have no idea if it did that through that. Then All right, I, is, I couldn't hear because I had my I had unplugged the earphones. So yeah, you were speaking. you were attached. Is it doing it right now? No. I see, and that's weird because I'm not doing it. Now anything, it's doing but... it again. What the hell? It's got to be the drive thing going out. Okay. It's got to be it. That's the only thing I can think of. So the only thing I was I was mentioning was uh, Darth Plagueis and right. the, uh, the, the talking of if that was a brother or how how she got Maul out and kept him from being tracked down. Was Savage the brother or was there another brother or is that just something that they wrote funky? 
not sure if we're ever really going to get much of an explanation. I would hope that we will for that, but it always kind of struck me that if there were twins, it was Savage and Maul, and Farrell seemed like he was maybe a younger brother that Savage was expected to look after and whatnot when we got to see him earlier. But it was all, I mean, that's all perceptions. We don't get enough information really about them within the episodes to know what Lucas himself was intending with these. So right now, all we have to go with is what vague hints what we get with Darth Plagueis and whatnot. Of course, that leads us into the final episode of Season 4, which was Revenge. And this was the big mall return that everybody would really been expecting. The spider mall thing really freaked people out. And people were like, oh, hell no, you're really going to bring him back as a creepy, weird spider dude? Please tell me that's not going to last. And it turns out, it didn't last. Uh, we have Maul and uh, Savage leave Lotho Minor, as uh, we also see, of course, in Wrath of Darth Maul. And they make their way... And they make their way back to Dathomir, where they meet with Mother Talzin, who has been preparing for their return, as she apparently returned from mist form after everything happened to the other Night Sisters and whatnot. And uh, she essentially rebuilds Maul's legs, takes apart the spider aspects to it, uh, pulls the, the darkness out of his mind, the, the illness, or whatever you want to call it, out of his mind, uh, almost visually here, and brings together all these spare parts and essentially like takes the metal and sort of carves new legs out of it. It's a little bit weird, the process that that goes through to shape it. But then again, they did create a weapon for Savage out of, you know, thin air, basically, out of the ground. And we get to see Maul sort of back in his form. He's not quite as powerful as he would have been before. He, he is speaking intelligently now, again. He wants revenge on Kenobi. He realized the Clone Wars have started without him. The plan has already gone ahead uh, without him there and decides to go and use the Slaughter of Innocence as a way to draw out the Jedi, specifically to draw out Kenobi, so that he can face Obi-Wan. And Savage and Maul manage to uh, knock out Obi-Wan, take him prisoner, uh, only for Obi-Wan to be rescued with the help of Asajj Ventress. Finally get to see those two fighting side by side, the banter between them working better than it ever has before, outstanding work there. Those two battling back and forth. We see Obi-Wan almost go a little bit dark side when Obi uh, when uh, Darth Maul is taunting him about Qui-Gon Jinn. Uh, a great episode with, uh, with some great fight sequences that finally ends up with uh, Obi-Wan and Asajj launching off themselves and leaving, supposedly stranded, barring the backup bridge that the ship has, uh, stranding Maul and Savage out there to eventually have that thread wrapped up in the Sith Hunters to finally... Uh, get Maul and Savage to somewhere, and then get uh, Obi-Wan and Asajj to somewhere so that Asajj can go on her her own merry little way. I thought this was an excellent episode, one of the best of the series it had up to that point. Yes, it was controversial because Maul was back, but as long as he's gone before we end the Clone Wars, it's not that big of a deal continuity-wise that he's back. I mean, it's a big deal, kind of, woo, holy crap, this is happening, but it's not nearly as impactful on the broader EU, making as much waves as people sometimes uh, made it out to be. And we really got a chance here to introduce a character people had sort of wanted to see more of in the past that didn't really get his due at the time. This was also the impetus for a lot of books and short stories and such that gave more depth to Maul as we went, so that Maul is now a character that I can actually like instead of thinking he's fluff very much like Boba Fett was when first introduced in the films. Um, just, just an all-around cool episode, though I had to kind of laugh I didn't even think of it at the time, but when he talks about, you know, how are we going to draw on the Jedi? The slaughter of innocence. I gotta wonder, does Star Wars have abortion? And if Star Wars has abortion, is there an anti-abortion movement? And how would they look at something like this? Would they use Maul and say, see, the slaughter of innocence, it's a Sith thing. 
be pro-life or some kind of like <laughs> campaign with that. Cause I mean, we've already joked before about how PETA must feel about certain aspects of star Wars. Um, that phrase slaughter of innocence. I, I guess I heard it recently on a news program talking about the abortion debate and it popped up as a, a pro-life statement or slogan. And it struck me that, huh, I wonder if that is in star Wars there. So maybe this is a trying to make a political statement without meaning to much like, uh, some said Lucas was trying to do with the prequels and uh, the Bush administration. <laughs> oh, man, that was so funny. I forgot my point. <laughs> it was slaughter. Uh, you know, w- when we see the the uh, legs that Mother Talzin gives him, I-, I felt that was very much the old wounds legs. I believe that was the one uh, where he had the long horns and all that. And he comes after a young uh, Luke Skywalker on Tatooine and Obi-Wan fights him there. Although we see in in season five, he gets a different set of legs later that go against that. But there was that aspect of where is Maul going to go from here? Because, you know, no one was expecting him to show up, which leads me back to that point that I forgot. If Maul could show up after being cut in half, I'm banking on Mace Windu showing up somewhere, sometime, someplace after episode three. Well, you know that Sam Jackson is saying that he wants to be in the upcoming sequel trilogy. So maybe he will. Come back. I mean, they they they've gone so far as to address the why is it that Sidious can have a lightsaber to fight Yoda when his other lightsaber uh, went out the window when fighting Mace Windu, and they said, well, see this that we see in season five with Sidious having two lightsabers. That's your explanation, though apparently he must have three because there was the one that the novelization said he had kept within a statue from the time that he got to Coruscant. But I mean, if they're yeah, going to find it, out how he lost that second one somewhere, there's a story waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah. But if they're going to go through the process of actually giving us an explanation for that, surely somewhere there'll be something about Mace Windu, whether it's, a, uh, well, somebody found his body, or he was nursed back to health, or maybe when he went flying out the window, which always felt a little weird. How does the lightning make him go, whee, and fly like a, a flying squirrel that's been kicked in the, well, nuts, uh, to make a squirrel pun? Um, oh, I'll tell you, it's because Palpatine filled him up with energy, Okay, and like a balloon, when you poke a hole in it, all that energy goes out that hole, and it can cut a hole in his hand. All that energy went launching out his hand. He went right out the window. No, no, I'm not. I'm not buying it. I'm. I'm not buying. It. <laughs> uh, but no, the idea that you know he could come back. I mean, I guess it's another one of these. If you don't see the body, they can come back. And heck, half the time, you know, if you follow the comic book rules, even if you do see a body, they can come back. But I don't know. That would seem a little bit. That would beg the same question, I guess. As with Kukruk in Legacy. Where have you been, dude, through all this other stuff? Yeah. Assuming yeah. that, you know, anything that exists in the EU still exists post-Return of the Jedi anyway, uh, once we see where they're going in directions with that. But, yeah, I think this was a controversial episode because of the bringing back of Maul. I think a lot of people were very skeptical about that. I think now a lot of skepticism has died down because we finally get to see the way that a lot of this pans out in Season five, I mean, in theory, they don't have to ever bring him back after season five. They can just say that Maul just uh, got killed by Sidious at one point. Sidious got tired of him and took him out. And that would be marginally satisfactory. The same thing of, you know, if they were to end with season five now with Ahsoka walking away, that may not be great for everyone, but it would at least explain why she's not among the Jedi and fighting in Revenge of the Sith or anything like that. So I think this was another of these setting up good things to come. And while it is a great episode by itself, a very action-packed episode by itself, one of the best that we had gotten visually uh, in quite a while, I think that this season as a whole, while ramping up its game and saying that, yes, Clone Wars has come into its own, 
it was nothing compared to what was coming soon. And a lot of the foundations were being laid here when we didn't necessarily realize that they were. Um, the only thing that this episode leaves me grumbly about a little bit is the fact that, well, we don't really get to see what happens immediately afterward because what they tried to do with season four or with season five was to do what they had done with previous seasons. Yes, we built up something cool at the end of the last season, but that's not where we're going with the first story arc of the next season. So they were trying to not go back to the mall stuff, but since they had built up the mall stuff so much, they just had to go back to mall for the first episode aired of season five, and they moved Revival out of the correct airing order and the correct chronological order and really confused a lot of folks um, by putting it in there as the beginning. This episode set up a need to shift an episode in season five, making this season, by the way, season four, the only season of all five of the Clone Wars at this point that actually had every episode air in chronological order. And that, for me, is why this is my favorite season thus far. I mean, it, it, it has that going for it. It's got the great carnage of Krell arc, the, the Shadow Warriors, all that fun. We had Maul coming back in. I, I felt that this one was, was when the Clone Wars is definitely was on its, its sprinting pace. You know, from here on out, everything feels better. I mean, it, 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 the graphics look better. The facial reconstruction of the characters look better. The elements in the backgrounds look better. The flames going on in the background. Everything just popped more. The stories were, were fitting well. And, you know, when we get in season five, all of this is a major, major play in that. It all is impactful. And, and the fact that it all ties together in that regard, I love. I, I, I just totally get a kick out of any time we get that in Star Wars, the greater EU side of me. That's that's where my fandom lies. I like the interconnections. So the, the groundwork is here for stuff to come, which plays up very well. But we also had some re resolutions to some of that stuff that came before that I really enjoyed. But that Pong Krell arc, man, that was my shining pinnacle of what the Clone Wars had to offer. So I, I give this one a strong eight to a, a strong nine as a season wise. This was a definite fun ride. Uh, it, it's good for all. And the fact that it was all in chronological order, it gives you less confusion when all the way around. So broadly speaking, we have a really, really strong season here. Of course, next episode, you get to hear our thoughts on the one season that is not yet on home video outside of things like iTunes and whatnot, which of course is season five that just recently ended here, which may be the last season of The Clone Wars for all we know. They say there's season six that's already in the works, but they have not announced anything at this point as to when or where we'll be able to see it, what channel, what time. Uh, the rumors abound. Everything from uh, it's jumping to Disney XD to Disney XD doesn't want it to, well, uh, it's going to wind up on Cartoon Network, but it's going to be still in 2013. They'll start it in May or something, so it's still within the contract year. Um, lots of things up in the air for the Clone Wars, but with one season left, you can expect one more week of Clone Wars coverage here from us on the show. Well, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you for hanging out with us and sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website www.starwarsreport.com Episodes are also available on iTunes and can be found right on our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. You can post comments to us about the show or ask us direct questions. We love interacting with you fellow fans. 
So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions and you just want to comment about the show of a past episode or anything like that, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. But lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash the Star Wars Report, you can get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. You can explore more than 100,000 titles, you can jump right into the galaxy far, far away, or explore any new genre without risk. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. Hey, in this digital age, if you're making the switch to the page to the screen, Audible just might be for you. And by the way, something else uh, that I guess I've mentioned a couple times on Facebook, for those of you who are looking for some oddities in comics, in sci-fi stuff, some Star Wars stuff, uh, my fiancé and I have opened up an Amazon shop to be able to basically just kind of sort through my collection and uh, sell off some stuff that's been sitting there for a while, some stuff from her collection, but a lot of different things, including Star Wars stuff, comic stuff, G.I. Joe, uh, Titan A.E., God of War, lots of cool stuff out there. Um, if you're looking for cool you know, sci-fi stuff, if you seem like you uh, share interest with us, you might check that out. It's at Amazon.com slash shops slash it's Lil Joe Collectibles, L-I-L-J-O collectibles all as one word uh, uh, be sure to check that out if you're looking for you know, interesting uh, very affordable buys excellent excellent so once again for star wars beyond the films this has been mark and whistler and nate with nobody saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you and don't bore us the odds that we'll ever hear anything about season six before next episode gets recorded. Ooh, that is, I, I want odds on that. Lando, put me down for twenty to five thousand to eighty-four. When they Slave did Ahsoka, ho! <laughs> Uh, to the planet Lotho Minor.